leads us to places of confrontation with evil. But by the end of it, we realize that it was a good place to be. Jesus accepted God-sent hardship. And if we're following Jesus, then we should expect God-sent hardship. And we should also accept it like Jesus did. If we follow Jesus, we can expect to experience the same things that he did. And this is not just uh, Jesus' story that we're reading here. It's also our story. Because Jesus is God in human flesh, undergoing what humanity, what we, go through. 2 Corinthians 4.4 describes the devil as the God of this world. It's a strange title, isn't it, for the enemy, for the devil. He's the God of this world. How can he be described as the God of this world? Well, from the beginning, humanity, we were set up to be the guardians of this world. You and I were meant to be the rulers of this world. We were meant to, on God's behalf, watch, look after this world, to exert God's holy and good authority, to bring his rule and dominion in the world. That's what we were given. That was our task, to make this world a good place to be and to live in. But it's not happened, because right at the beginning with Adam and Eve, the first guardians, our representatives, they yielded to the influence of the devil. And it's not just them, this is our story too. We've all abdicated our role in some way by allowing the God of this world ever since, um, to, to, you know, the God of this world to have influence in our lives. And ever since that first time that Adam and Eve succumbed to him, we as humans have been easy meat the devil would be an easy meat for him and if you can't if you can beat and take out our figureheads at the source he can beat us we won't rise above it we're a bit like a river if you like a river never rises above its source does it and our source is adam and eve in the garden we're downstream and we never rise above their defeat our stories are ones of taintedness of flaws, of failures, of capitulation, of abdication, of sin. And maybe some people have managed in the kind of history of humankind to go a few rounds with the enemy. You know, really good people in the world. But when you read their stories, you kind of realize that these people have their flaws as well. You think about the greatest humans who've ever lived. You get up close and personal and you realize they failed in some ways as well. They had their own flaws. And if they're as good as we thought they were, then they probably recognize that that's the case. But each of us carries flaws, but we, we like to kid ourselves, don't we? We like to have quite a high view of ourselves, that, to think that we stand out from the crowd. Perhaps even as I say this, you're slightly offended because you recycle, or you've managed to keep a couple of the Ten Commandments throughout your life. Maybe you kind of think to yourself, I would never do X, I would never lie. I don't do that. I would never murder. I would never kill thousands of Jews. And actually, the devil's really crafty because he's really happy for us to have our I would never. He, he, he's happy for us to have our I would never lie. I would never do this. He's happy for us to think to ourselves, I've kept some of the commandments. And by the way, there are many of them. <laughs> but he's happy for us to think to ourselves, I've kept a few of them. He says, well done you keeping a few of them. Good job. And we can spend our life 
not telling lies, but lying to ourselves inwardly, kidding ourselves and lying to God, trying to defend ourselves like a city that hasn't got a wall. And we can be really proud of the part of the wall that we've built. I've kept some of these commandments. I would never do those things. Look, look at the wall I've built. But the wall only stretches around part of the city. The reality is we're defenseless. We're overridden by our enemy. We're overwhelmed by the power of the God of this world. Every human is, just like Adam and Eve. We've fallen to his temptations at some point. And all the people throughout Scripture who we hold up as heroes have done the same as well, haven't they? Adam, Moses, uh, Abraham, Israel, the nation, David, Solomon, all of them. Until this man that we read about today. Until this man, Jesus Christ, comes on the scene. The enemy could not defeat and overwhelm him. And by the Spirit, he withstood temptation. Even in the wilderness, the, um, Evelyn was pre- uh, prophesying earlier about parched land. Jesus was in parched land. He's in the wilderness. He's not in the Garden of Eden. He's not in the abundance of the garden. He's in the, the wilderness of the desert. And Jesus stayed strong like no one else that came before him or since. And this is huge, isn't it? This is huge. This is a comfort that we have in humanity. A human in Jesus Christ, a new representative, a new figurehead for us who has withstood all that the devil had to throw at him. Who wasn't overwhelmed, who wasn't tainted, flawed, who wasn't a failure, who didn't capitulate, abdicate, one who was completely without sin. Jesus, in these verses, has emerged as the victor. He's emerged as the one who's overcome the enemy and And by doing that, he's provided a hiding place for you and I. Through his victory, his conquest, by his triumph, he's given his triumph to us. He's taken out our enemy and defeated him on our behalf. It's good news, isn't it? This is huge for us. And Jesus didn't do this for himself. Jesus went through this for you and I. For you and I, so that we could stand so that we could not be overwhelmed, so that we could not give in to temptation and sin, not be defeated and conquered, so that our lives could be hidden in Christ with God and his victorious life shared with us. So this is Jesus' story that we're reading this morning, but this is also our story. And the story up till now is that Jesus has been baptised, the heavens have been opened to him, the Spirit has been given to him to empower him to live life, he knows the Father's delight and love for him, and then he's led into this wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the first temptation uh, is towards the end of his 40 days of fasting, and his weakness was needing food. And the devil tempts him, we turn stones to bread. Jesus resists and declares that he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, not by bread alone, that he's dependent on God. And then we get to this passage here in Matthew 4. Verses 5 to 7. Matthew 4, verses 5 to 7, which I'm hoping will come up on the screen. Great, thanks, Joe. And it reads like this Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, Sebs and I have been playing um, a computer game recently, Mario Land 2, on the SNES. Um, and I'm absolutely loving it. And to be honest, because he's six, he's not very good at it. But because I am, he's actually getting a lot better at it. And the way that it works is that computer games are predictable, aren't they? And we're sat next to one another playing the game. And the reason Sebs is getting really good at Mario Land is because every time something happens, I can tell him what's happening next. I can say, Sebs, you need to get ready to jump this next creature or whatever it is coming at you because it's, there's one coming. And lo and behold... In comes the creature, he jumps it. And he gets very good at it, because I'm sat next to him explaining what's coming and how to deal with it. And the enemy's temptations are predictable. But with the Lord Jesus beside us, talking to us, the same spirit empowering us as it did him, we can know how to deal well with the temptations of the enemy. So I'm just going to talk about four things that are predictable about the enemy's tactics and how we can overcome them with the help of the spirit and by following in the Lord's footsteps. And the first is, he's got a predictable goal. The enemy's goal is to place us, to place Jesus above the Father. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get us to swap places. He's the Lord God and us, and we submit to his good and loving, holy authority. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get Jesus to manipulate God. He's trying to get him to place himself above the Father, But it's the Father who sent the Son. And that's what he's always doing in our lives as well. He's always getting us to try and reverse the order. He's always trying to get us to place ourselves above God, to make him serve us rather than us to serve him. And so the devil does things like this in the passage. In in these couple of sentences, he demands daring faith in God's promises. Do this, this will be, you know, leap into God's arms. Hey, if you've got faith in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, hey, this would prove it. This would this be something special. Everyone would know you're the son of God then, wouldn't they? This would be radical faith, daring faith. Leap into the arms of God. And Jesus teaches the importance of devotion to God. The devil says it's impossible to have too much faith in God, isn't it? Leap can't have too much faith. Jesus says, this is testing God. It's not trusting him. This is just playing with him like a toy. Devil says, show your faith in God. Leap into his arms. Jesus says, there's no reason or purpose other than to affirm what I already know in my baptism. This is a presumptuous, it's not, a, it's presumptuous, it's not a, an act of faith. The devil says, you be radical God will come to your rescue. Jesus says, the Father doesn't follow my leaps. I follow him wherever he leads me. So we can't throw ourselves around expecting God to follow us, expecting his miraculous rescue and salvation from our purposeless leaps of radical faith. Because he doesn't serve us, we serve him. He's always getting us to try and reverse the order. And so what Jesus does here is he uses a careful use of scripture 
in response to the devil's careless use of Scripture. Both Psalm 91 and Deuteronomy 6, which the devil and Jesus quote, have their right time, don't they? We, all, we need the whole counsel of God. We need everything that's in Scripture to help us make decisions, to deal with temptations. It's all needed to live a life of faith in God. It's not to be cherry, Verses aren't to be cherry-picked, are they? I'm facing this situation. I cherry-pick that verse. It helps me decide to do X and justifies the reasons that I have for wanting to do that, even if it's not the right decision or not. We need wisdom for trying to work out what is the ver- what's, the, what's the Bible saying to us in this particular situation. We need the leading of the Spirit, don't we, to help guide us as to, to which part is helping us in this to discern which verse and passage is appropriate. How, how do we discern whether we should or shouldn't do something? Is really we need to ask the questions, does it love God? Because Jesus, Jesus said, didn't he, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. These are the two most important commandments. And love your neighbor as yourself. So when the devil's tempting us, and we're a little bit unsure, does the thing that we're doing, would it love God? Because... Jesus leaping from the pinnacle of the temple would not have loved God. It would have made him his errand boy. Do this for me. It wouldn't love him. And it wouldn't have loved others because it served no purpose. And so those are some of the questions we can ask ourselves when we're tempted and we're unsure what to do in life. Jesus obeyed in this situation his father, trusted in his plans and timings, because there is going to be a time when Jesus is going to be taken to the holy city, to Jerusalem, just like he is in this passage, where he's going to be taken to the cross, where he's going to be lifted up to a high place, but on a cross. And people are going to say exactly the same thing to him there. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, why not come down from that cross? But that temptation, that battle has already been won when he trusted in his father's plans here. We often find that with temptation, actually, as well, don't you? That the Lord takes you through a period of testing and trial to help you persevere so that you would lack nothing. So when the real test comes down later down the line, you've already won the battle in that place. And actually, it's much easier to walk it in this next place. The second thing is this, that the enemy uses predictable methods. Previously, the enemy has tempted Jesus' weakness, but now he's going to test his strength. You would have thought he'd test his next greatest weakness, but he doesn't. He tests Jesus' strength. Previously, it was his weakness of hunger. Now, it's going to be his strength of faith in the word of God. The faith which enabled him to resist the first temptation. Jesus, the way that Jesus resisted the first temptation was faith, that every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord is what, we, what he lives on. He doesn't live by bread alone, lives on the word of God. And Jesus says, it is written in his first defense. And then see what the enemy does in his second temptation? He uses Jesus' own words. Oh, if you're the son of God, leap into his arms. And it is written. Here's some biblical proof that this is the faith-filled action to take. You said it is written. Okay, if that's your strength. Hey, it's also written this. He quotes it back at him. He tempts him with scripture. This is important to know because the devil can be practical and spiritual. He's not just sensual and carnal. He's also spiritual in his temptations. All of his temptations are not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) 
You think, well, I haven't been tempted recently to uh, take cocaine. No. <laughs> it's not the way he's always working. He's not all drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Jesus' most common opponents in the Gospels are who? They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're, they're the Bible-believing uh, religious elite of the time. They're the spiritual ones. And so previously, the devil's tempting Jesus with being super practical. You need some food, just eat. Just turn these stones into bread. You've got to eat. Come on. And now he's being super spiritual. Hey, you got faith in God? Be fanatical and radical about it. It's important to know that the devil then is not just at work in the wilderness, in the parched land. He's also at work in the holy places. Jesus is taken to the holy city, to the holy temple, and tempted with the scriptures. And that's important because the devil is not just at work out there in the world when you're living your 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. He's in here on a Sunday morning. And he's really busy, all the time. Really busy. He's hard at work. It's probably his biggest day. He's not just tempting us out there in the wilderness, in the world. He's tempting us in here, in the church, too. We're not immune to his influence. He's, plenty, he's capable of winning many battles in here as well. So the devil tells Jesus, prove indeed what you claimed in speech. He says essentially, hey, why don't you put your money where your mouth is, then Jesus. Put your money where your mouth is. You believe in the word of God, don't you? Then step on it. Dare the risk of faith. Live by faith. I don't ask you on my own authority to do this. I don't invite you uh, even for yourself to get anything for yourself. This will glorify God. This will be very good for him. Prove him. Show him that you really trust him. God's promises in Psalm 91, they're not just for God's people, are they? Surely, if they're for God's people, they're also for you as the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Because Jesus' strength is his relationship with the Father and his trust in him, and that's what the devil tempts. He tempts him with this kind of additional assurance and confirmation, which has already been revealed to him by God at his, the Father at his baptism. It says, this will really show that you trust the Father. Then you'll really know that the heavens are open to you. If you did this, then you would really know. This would be proper assurance and confirmation that it's the case. Then you'll know really that heaven's open to you. The angels will come down and help you. He says, then you'll know really that the Spirit is with you. Then you'll know that you're really loved. You'll really know that the Father loves you then if he rescues you in this situation. He's tempted with radical faith, asked to trust God without reason or any visible means of support. So why does, why does the enemy do this? Why does he attack our strengths? Because it's, it's not such an obvious problem as our weaknesses, is it? You're probably aware of your weakness, probably very, very aware of your weaknesses. So not surprised when the enemy attacks you there. We expect them to be tempted, but it's possible to give in to temptation by presuming our strengths just as much as it is by succumbing to weakness. I'll give you an example in Scripture. Peter's great strength is his headstrong faith in the Lord, isn't it? He's the, he's the first and most immediate to obey the Lord and to serve him in most situations. 
Remember the time when Jesus says that he's going to go to the cross? And Peter jumps in, ahead of all the other disciples. No, Lord, you can't die. You're, you know, you're the Lord and Master. And then what does Jesus tell him? Get behind me, Satan. Peter was tested in his greatest strengths. So what are your strengths? How might the enemy use those to tempt you to radical, fanatical faith that's really purposeless and not in line at all with God's will? The third thing is this, uh, predictable promise. As I said, it's full of holy things, isn't it? The devil uh, takes him to the holy city, Jerusalem, the greatest city on earth, the city of God, the light to the nations. He takes him to the holy temple. This is the dwelling place of God with man on earth. It's where heaven meets earth. And he tempts him with holy scripture, the word, very word of God. The enemy's temptations, then, are always full of promise. Always full of promise. The devil puts us in high places because he wants to dash us to the ground. High places in our mind are very slippery places. The first temptation takes place in the wilderness, a deserted place, a place of nothingness. The second temptation in the holy city, temple. The pinnacle even of the temple, a place of grandeur, a place of prestige on the world stage, a high place. And the devil's promise is always this. The grass is greener. The Lord's led you into the wilderness over there. Here's the pinnacle of the temple. The grass is greener over here. He's going to do it in the third temptation as well. You're in the wilderness over there. How about I give you the kingdoms of the world? The Lord's going to make you go all the way to the cross. He's, he's making you wait. How about I give you the kingdoms of the world now? Not later. I give you them now. The grass is greener. So the first temptation, he does it as well, the hunger from hunger to satisfaction. Wouldn't it be better to not be hungry? It would be better to be full, wouldn't it? And so in the second temptation, faith in God's word, great. But wouldn't it be even greater to have the greater faith of leaping into God's arms? That would be a grass is greener type place to be, wouldn't it? He says that um, the baptism assurance of an open heaven, spirit's power, and the Father's love, to even greater assurance that the Father loves you and delights in you. It's the same old trick as the Garden of Eden. Remember? The Lord God didn't, didn't say to eat that tree, did he? What? No, not that tree. That's the best tree in the garden. That fruit... Oh, surely not. That's the tastiest fruit you could eat in this garden. He doesn't want the best for you. I don't think he really loves you. He's keeping his best from you. He's withholding it from you. But through it all, through this temptation, this old trick of the enemies, Jesus is trusting his baptism promises. Open heaven, spirit's empowerment. He's the well-loved son that he'll be all right. So the devil always promises, he always promises the grass is greener. Marriage is in a tough place. That relationship over there would be a lot greener. She doesn't affirm you and encourage you. She would. Not satisfied with that friendship. Did they confront you on something? Those friends over there wouldn't. 
Finding it difficult in that job over there, are you? This one over here would be free of trouble. Be all that your hearts desire. Struggling for purpose in life, are you over there? Grass is greener this side. Come this way. Promises you better marriage, better job, better friendships, better home, better car, better possessions, better self-esteem, happiness, achievements, recognition. The Lord doesn't really want the best for you. That doesn't look a good place over there. The wilderness? Hmm. Grass is greener over here. Come with me. Let me show you what life could really be like. He doesn't really love you. The heavens are not open to you. The spirit is not with you. This is a wilderness place. Come with me to the grass is greener over here. He's always promising the grass is greener. And often we swallow it, don't we? We swallow those promises. But the encouragement here is don't swallow it, folks. Don't swallow the lies of the enemy. He's lying to you. The grass is not greener over that side. You are right where the Lord wants you to be in the wilderness. He has you in a good place. It might look bad, but if you're with him, you're in a good place. You might think, if only I had... Life would be so much better. That's the enemy talking to you. If only X, life would be so much better. If you've been baptized because you have faith in Jesus, then the baptisms, the promises of God at Jesus' baptism are true for you at every moment. Open heaven, spirit's empowerment, the Father's love and delight in you. The Father is giving you the best that he has. He is withholding nothing from you whatsoever. The Spirit is with you at every moment. Even when you don't feel it, he's right there leading you to the place where you are. The Father loves you. He delights in you. He's pleased with you. You're never out of his mind. He will give you absolutely everything you need. The promises of your baptism are always true, whether you feel like they're true or not. And the other basic thing that Jesus does to win this battle of temptation is to fast. He denies himself the basic things in life to gain the fruit of depending on God. One writer says this, fasting breeds self-denial and thereby narrows the devil's foothold in the soul. It's good to deny yourself things in life, to test what's in your heart, to know that you'll follow him, obey him. It builds strength. Fasting is well worth making a regular habit in life. If you're not doing it at all, maybe just think, one day in a month I'm going to fast one meal. Just start there. Skip a breakfast or a lunch. Just depend on the Lord. And the final thing, just shortly, uh, briefly, is this. Predictable timing. Rod spoke about Jesus being tempted at the end of his 40 days, the most vulnerable at his weakest. Why did the Spirit lead Jesus from the crowds in the River Jordan, crowds, to the isolation of the wilderness. It's because the devil would predictably come and tempt Jesus in, his, in the vulnerability of his isolation because the enemy attacks the lonely. Predictable timing, it's when you're alone. The enemy attacks the lonely because he's trying to split us off from God and his people. 
So when we feel alone, you might not literally be alone. You could be sat here right now and feeling like you're the only one who feels that way. Nobody else understands my life and the things I'm going through. He's isolating you. You're feeling lonely and you're vulnerable. Or it might be that you're actually lonely. Friends around you don't have that many. Perhaps you moved recently or something like that and you're actually alone. It's a vulnerable place to be. It's often how people drift away from God, isn't it? There's some good reason to not gather regularly on a Sunday or in house groups with other people, not to maintain friendships with folks in church. And what happens when we do that is that we put distance between us and the others and others, and it leaves us open and vulnerable. And so in in church life often happens that that the enemy is putting suggestions and thoughts into our mind that would split us off from other people. They don't understand what life is like for you. Their intentions, when they said that, they probably meant X or Y. I mean, you've got no idea what the person's intentions were, but the devil likes to plant them all the time. They were thinking this about you. They were thinking that about you. This is how they perceive you. He'll remind you of times you felt dishonored, uncared for. If they loved you, they would do this for you. But they don't do this for you, so they don't really love you. Maybe he argues for reasonable expectations. It's not unreasonable for you to expect people in church to do X or Y for you. He's trying to split you off from others. Remind you of things that would make you angry, bitter, resentful. Or he tempts you with things like, they're a better Christian than you. They're very holy. There are others, they're not, they're not like you are. If they knew what you'd like, you were like, they wouldn't have anything to do with you. All of those things, anything that pops into your mind that puts distance between you and others, is just the enemy at work. He's just trying to split you off from everybody else, make you vulnerable, attack you, and leave you bereft. So it's so important that we gather around one another, we do life together, being honest, open, vulnerable, authentic with others about our strengths, our weaknesses, the temptations we experience in life. And the reason that is, is because if the things that you portray to everybody else in your life are a mask, masking the things that are actually going on in your heart and life and in your thought life, they cannot effectively encourage you, counsel you as your, as your friend. Yeah? They will counsel you about something that isn't happening because you've just presented something that isn't the truth. And so their advice and counsel and encouragement is based on unreality, not on the reality of who you are. And it's so difficult to do, but it's so important in our relationships with one another, in our house groups and in, in our life together, that we are vulnerable, open, and honest with one another so we can encourage one another with the things that are actually going on in our mind and heart and let people in on the scariness of the things that the devil is tempting us with. The way that he'll try to get in there is by distancing you from others, by making you feel like you can only share X or Y, but you couldn't tell them Z, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, because then they wouldn't accept you, they wouldn't love you. They, you know, what, how might they respond? Well, hopefully they'll respond with love and understanding, because they're all going through exactly the same thing as well. The enemy's trying to get in there. All right. We'll, uh, we're going to move on to breaking of bread in a second, but let's, um, should we still ourselves before the Lord? We'll just um, see how he might lead us to respond to him.
just as I was preparing, um, I felt the Lord would say that there are some of us here who the, de- the enemy is always telling, the grass is greener. And just as I was talking about grass is greener over there, that's how he tempts you. There's something he's tempting you with right now. Tempting you with right now, where he's painting this wonderful picture of what it would be like if you abandoned X and just went for his Y. This hardship, this could all be over. This difficulty, this pressure, this struggle could all be over. Just follow me. The grass is greener over here. Make this decision. And the Lord just wants to remind you, he's lying to you. He's lying to you. Don't fall for it. The grass is not greener. Stay in the place where you are. The Lord is with you. He's not withholding anything from you. He loves you. He's with you. Trust him through the pressure and the trial, the testing, the parched land, the wilderness, whatever it it is, trust him through it. He's with you. And I felt the Lord also wanted to say to some of us where perhaps we just feel a little bit on the edge of things, on the edge of church life, on the edge of friendships, on the edge of is this really where I'm meant to be? The enemy in those situations loves to get in. And it might be that a transition's on the way. You've got to be on what be be watchful, be alert. He loves to get in there and split you off and the people of God. He loves it. Don't let him in. Make a decision. Stick close to people. If you're moving on to something else, make sure you do it in good relationship with others, in friendship, well supported and encouraged all the way. Don't cut yourself off from people. So Lord, we pray. Um, we, need your, we need your Spirit's help. We need help, Lord, distinguishing between the difference of feeling like the heavens are open to us, feeling your love for us, feeling the Spirit's power and presence with us, and the truth that the heavens are always open to us that you always are delighted in us in Christ, that you are always with us by your Spirit, alongside us, encouraging us through life. Help us to know the truth of that and to walk day by day in truth and by the power of your Spirit as we resist all that the enemy throws at us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.